like you to firstly shuffle these for me mm -hmm. and just shuffle, shuffle until one falls out and then just stop shuffling. You're listening to History Lab. I like to call these my inner purpose mm -hmm. cards. Historian Alana Piper and History Lab producer Zoe Ferguson are at a special appointment in Sydney. They're having their fortunes told. Tarot card reading, to be precise. Um, I think the next 12 months for you are going to be very challenging. Most people know what fortune-telling is, whether they're believers or not, but not many people actually know about the history of it in Australia. Whether there's a fast woman coming into your life or a slow horse going out of it, fortune-telling at home is always great fun. It was described as a fad, but it was prosecuted as a crime. No way! And it's actually still banned in some parts of Australia today. Like where? Your hometown. Adelaide? Yeah. Really? Yeah. And the Northern Territory. Wow. Yeah, it's so surprising. But here in Sydney, our fortune teller is allowed to look into the future, or at least try to. Mm. You have a lot of responsibilities. Families coming through, I feel like. Are your kids quite young? That's so I don't actually have kids. Are you going to have kids? Not planning to. Wow. So I'm Dr Alana Piper from the University of Technology, Sydney, researching criminal justice history. Alana was working in the Queensland State Archives when she accidentally stumbled upon stories of female fortune tellers who were pursued by some of the most powerful policemen in Australia. So I came across this fascinating police correspondence, this huge stack of letters and interdepartmental memos about the need to crack down on fortune-telling and missives about how they had gone about it during the Federation period and the First World War. 82% of those prosecuted for fortune-telling are women. So why were these female fortune-tellers so aggressively pursued by the police? And how did fortune tellers use the law to fight back? It seems like it's slowly growing in popularity during the 1890s, but then it's really during the Federation era that it's professionalised, that it totally explodes into public consciousness that this is a vogue, this is a trend that's going on. Unfortunately, it's a crime. So this becomes problematic then as fortune-telling becomes more popular, that there's a lot of pressure on the police to sort of crack down and make an example of these fortune-tellers and to enforce the law. And actually, Tamsin, there's one Sydney fortune-teller who's still cited in legal judgments today, Mary Scales. Mrs Scales was one of the most remarkable figures in the legal history of the state. She was an illiterate laundress turned fortune teller. By all accounts, Mary Scales was quite simply the most famed and successful fortune teller in all of Federation Sydney, perhaps Federation Australia. And by all accounts, a pretty formidable individual. So snippets of Mary's colourful life are peppered throughout the newspapers of her day, but her beginnings weren't so fortunate. Her background was actually quite impoverished. She was illiterate. She could only sign her own name. Uh, and so she worked in her early life as a washerwoman. But Mary, it seems, had a gift. So eventually Mary comes into contact with an admiral in the Navy and actually sort of does a sort of off-the-cuff reading for him, which he's so impressed by. He introduces her to the creme de la creme of Sydney society and starts to promote her as this really gifted clairvoyant. 
Slowly, she built a reputation for herself, and this is what landed her in the newspapers. So there's a number of surviving illustrations in various newspapers at the time, in the 1910s. But the best illustration I think we have of Mary is a photograph from the 1920s where we see quite an ordinary-looking woman in uh, many ways, an old woman. She's uh, dressed in black, black hat. She's got heavy eyebrows and a very sort of clear-eyed stare. I sort of think when you look at there's something about the eyes that to me just looks very formidable. But in cartoons, Mary was depicted in a much less flattering light. They appeared in newspapers such as the scandal rag Truth, which really had a stock and trade in moral campaigning and inciting moral panics about various behaviours that they saw as incompatible with Australian values, including fortune telling. So Federation era Australia, modern nation state is yeah. being made a fool of by yeah. these archaic practices. Yeah, there are letters to the editors in newspapers absolutely sort of complaining this that are signed things like a citizen or white Australia saying, you know, we can't let this continue if we're going to be sort of seen as a legitimate nation on the world stage. How can we be associated with this superstitious practice? So fortune-telling was seen as dangerous? Yes, newspapers were warning about the repercussions of fortune-telling on, quote, weak-minded women. And there was a concern women in the suburbs were frittering away household funds on fortune-telling charlatans. So I think the other reason that it really attracts a lot of negative attention is that the Federation period is all about the era of white men, of white Australia and in particular, this idea that it's a, it's a nation of British men who are part of a, a forward-thinking people that, you know, is very sort of sceptical and, and not beholden to superstitions of the past and the sort of criticism of fortune-telling as this low-culture practice that's associated with, you know, women, uh, foreigners and the working classes, which is, you know, really the sort of three uh, things that in the white Australia of the Federation period you don't want to be associated with. But it's not just about these working-class women telling fortunes. It's also about the money they're making. Mary scales and sort of up to what would be the equivalent of sort of $5 million. Five million bucks! Yeah, it was a well-paying job. So fortune-telling is a form of work. It's a form of labour. It's something that they can get paid for. There's also, I think, a feeling against the fact that women are not just doing this but are doing it well and successfully. Um, There's so much vitriol about the fact that really working-class women are leaving behind their sort of respectable occupations as surface women, as washerwomen, have decided that this traditional occupation is not good enough for them. And there's lots and lots of stories brought before the courts of women who no longer have husbands to support them, that this is a way to support not only themselves but their children. You've been talking a lot about stuff about their lives. Like, how do you know all this stuff? So I actually went through all the sort of newspaper reports on fortune-telling prosecutions from 1900 through to 1918 and constructed a table of all the women and men who are prosecuted. We do have enough to know that the average age of women who are coming up before the courts is 43 years old. 
So these were women in the autumn years of their life? Exactly. In 1901, a woman's life expectancy was around 60 years old. And these women would have been factory workers or laundresses who were probably unable to continue physically demanding work, but they still needed to make a buck. And fortune-telling was the perfect solution. The typical cost of a psychic reading during the Federation period was two shillings sixpence, and that's about equivalent to the price of a movie ticket today. One estimate that sort of gets thrown around in the newspapers a lot is that they were earning on an average of three to five pounds a week, which again is really great in terms of working class conditions for women at the time. And in fact, a wage that's almost sort of double what you might expect to make as a servant or a factory worker. And there and there are some women who are earning well in excess of that. In the newspapers, they talk about tins of gold. She didn't trust the banks, so she used to uh, hide her wealth in the backyard. I'm Samadhi Driscoll, and I'm the great-great-granddaughter of Mary Scales. Samadhi is a family historian, and she discovered her infamous ancestor by accident. One day, driving with my brother in Randwick, and I was telling him about the book that I was working on and this person who could speak to ghosts. And he said, oh, you know, we have a psychic ancestor. I was like, what? We have a what? Really, he didn't know too much. He just knew that she was a fortune teller and that she had made a lot of money. And I thought, wow, okay, why don't I know about her? So I tried to find out a little bit more information from my family and not much was forthcoming. So Samadhi next tried searching Trove. I mean, it's amazing. It's kind of like Google for historians. Yeah. And she typed in Mary Scales. All these articles came up. Psychic, Mrs Scales, her strange story. Alleged fortune teller, Mary Scales before the court. Scales of justice. Clairvoyant's romantic rise from poverty to affluence. It blew my mind. I mean, she rose from poverty to absolute wealth and she fought the system and she operated outside of society's norms and she succeeded. Samadhi learned that Mary's fortune-telling clients were Sydney's A-listers. Mark Foy, who's a very eccentric businessman, he was very successful in creating shopping centres in Australia. The stories go he doesn't make a decision unless he consults Mary first. And there are stories that actually uh, Lady Carrington comes to her and gets her fortunes told. Lady Carrington, she's the wife of the Governor of New South Wales. And what's the Governor's wife doing getting her fortune told? Wasn't it illegal? Yeah, it was, but it was also really popular at parties and in ballrooms. This sort of catapults her into this new class of society. It turns into this incredibly lucrative business. But, of course, not everybody was such a fan of fortune-telling. It's about 1903, and this is the first encounter with the law. For Mary, this would be the first of many. Uh, A police officer comes to her shop to arrest her for false fortune-telling. So Mary had a shop at the Sydney Arcade in King Street where her husband, George, was her receptionist. And so she lifts up her skirt (laughs) and underneath her skirt, in, in her stocking, she's got this pouch 
of money full of gold coins and she just takes it and goes, well, George, you better have this then and passes it over to George and the police officer is dumbfounded, probably has never seen that much money in his life and just looks to George and George says, what do you think of a woman like that? (laughs) (laughs) Hang on a second. How does Samadhi know this? I mean, is it some sort of family law that's been passed down? No, so she only found out this story and what her great-great-grandfather George said because it was reported in the newspaper The Truth in 1922. Yeah, The Truth was a pretty notorious scandal sheet, as I recall, and I'm not sure I'd believe everything it says. And anyway, wasn't Mary arrested in 1903? Why is it being reported almost 20 years later? Well, that's because Mary brought an appeal to the High Court. Really? Go, Mary! I know, and we'll come back to that. But Mary first took on the police after she was arrested a second time. So I think her most important legacy to the profession at the time, uh, but also to law in Australia into this day, is that she challenges one of the fortune-telling prosecutions that's made against her in 1907. She has the money, so she engages legal representation and they challenge the legality of the law, the statute, being used to prosecute all the fortune-tellers. What was she arguing? So she argued that even though Australia had inherited an English law that criminalised fortune-telling, conditions in Australia were quite different to those in England, where fortune-telling was associated with vagrancy and the Romani people, so-called gypsies. It's ruled that this was not received law in the Australian colonies and based on that judgment, the prosecution against Mary is rendered mute and uh, the police try to appeal the decision. They take it all to the way to the High Court of Australia, which has only been in formation for a few years at this point, and the High Court rules in Mary's favour. Oh, wow. So she won. Yeah. But it was a short-lived victory. Because next year, New South Wales, in its Police Offences Act, includes a provision against fortune-telling, so it continues to be prosecuted. But a big win at the time for fortune-tellers. So actually, in a way, because of Mary's case, the law against fortune-tellers became even harsher. Mm Mm-hmm. But Mary was a woman who didn't give up, and years later she would use her first fortune-telling arrest to her benefit. In 1920, George Scales dies, and he leaves a will that does not please Mary at all. Okay, what did it say? It bequeathed his money to Mary, but there were two things wrong with this. Firstly, it was her money to begin with, and secondly, it was going to be drip-fed to her in a weekly allowance. So what did she do? She contested the will, of course. Of course. She challenges it all the way to the Privy Council in England. So she goes on a six-week sailing journey over to England. This is astonishing. This woman has lost her case in the New South Wales Supreme Court, lost it at the High Court of Australia, and she's a grandmother and she gets on a boat and goes to England to contest it at the Privy Council. I mean, the stakes are high. She's fighting this battle to be recognised as the true amasser of this fortune that has been accrued by the couple. And one of the most fascinating things about that case is that she wins the case based on evidence from police officers who have arrested her. 
And what those police officers had witnessed is the fact that she has made huge amounts of money from this business. Is that the story of the coin purse under her skirt? Exactly. It's a big deal. It's a huge court case. There's 11 men in wigs, as I've read, and she wins. Well, kind of. The Privy Council upheld the Australian court's decision, but they threw Mary a bone and gave her £4,000. This is much more than throwing Mary a bone. I mean, the Privy Council ruled in favour of one of her claims. Yes, and Mary actually ended up with £20,000. The Privy Council ruled that the initial £4,000 had been invested quite savvily on her behalf. It's a substantial amount of money. She sails back to Australia and the money's due to be released on a particular day just after she sails back. And the night before she's to get the money, she died. Now, the death certificate, which I've obtained, says it's through a cardiac arrest. This is sort of interesting. That seems like she had no heart problems before that. Quite possibly she did die from a cardiac arrest, a heart attack, but pretty strange it's the day before she was due to get that money. But that's not the end of the story. Before she died, she'd made a will, and that will put some of her family offside. When she passed in 1926, she left the entire fortune to the females of the family. Um, So I believe her sons inherit some money, but the ongoing fortune is only through the female lineage for three generations. So the money was put in a trust account and it could only be used for medical bills, education and fashion. What else do you need? (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) It meant that my um, grandmother and great aunties went to the best boarding schools and also the other females in that that lineage, uh, dance lessons, anything that was of betterment for the woman, they were able to tap into and use. And of course, the fantastic fashion. So the scales women lived in Manly and they were always impeccably dressed, gorgeous fabrics and fabulous hats. They were the envy of the manly fairies, apparently. If she left all this money to these women, would you describe her will as a feminist will? Yeah, definitely. I think perhaps a sort of feminist acknowledgement that she's had it tough and, you know, had to battle first against the police and then against her own family. And, uh, you know, that made her eager to ensure future generations of the women in her family wouldn't have to go through something similar. So one thing's been puzzling me. If fortune-telling is a crime because it's a form of fraud, what if fortune-tellers really, really, really believed that what they were saying was true? I mean, isn't there a good faith defence? So this has been, I think, the biggest issue in the history of fortune-telling regulation across England and Australia and Canada and the United States. That's Jeremy Patrick. He's a legal historian at the University of Southern Queensland, and he's interested in fortune-telling, witchcraft, spirituality, and their interaction with the law. This issue of whether there is a sort of good-faith defence, an affirmative defence, that the fortune-teller really believes that they have the power to do what they're doing. Because from that perspective, we might say they're not defrauding anybody if they really think they can do what they're doing. But courts have unanimously held that, no, that's not a defense. 
Except for when they did. There was a short time in England when the good faith defence could be used. In that three-year period between roughly 1918 and 1921, that defence did exist. Uh, and the courts held that someone who sincerely believed they had the ability to do something by that nature wasn't defrauding someone. They might have been mistaken, but that's different than intentional fraud. But then the courts changed their mind again, and this fortune-telling loophole was closed, and the law reverted back to the idea that... It doesn't matter whether the, the fortune-teller believes that they can do what they can do. Nobody can do what they can do, and anybody who says they can, whether they believe it or not, is defrauding people. OK, so the courts thought fortune-tellers were frauds, but we also know they were really popular in Australia. Were the police officers also among their fans? The short answer is yes. But fortune tellers had to be really smart about how they dealt with police. And no one was smarter than Madame Repra. So Alice Harper, aka Madame Repra, uh, was a fortune teller who uh, practised for many years through the 1890s and early 1900s, sort of travelling around Australia to various cities and regional towns. Then in 1914, she wanted a permanent base. And so she decides to set up premises in South Yarra in Chapel Street and decides to take the initiative of actually getting in touch with the Chief Police Commissioner, Alfred Sainsbury, and ask him to sort of judge whether her business is legitimate or not. What? So she willingly went to the police? Yeah. And Alfred Sainsbury seemed to have quite liked her. So Sainsbury visits with Madame Repra, Alice Harper, and finds her charming, well-educated, and he's sort of tempted to be lenient with her, but he's a bit concerned, so he makes a bargain with her. He's going to send an undercover detective to visit her premises and to see the way that she conducts her business. But Madame Repra had a plan. What Alice Harper was relying on was a sort of skirting around the laws around fortune-telling. She was suggesting that character reading actually wasn't about telling the future. So she might look at someone and sort of intuit things about their character and based on that might give them advice about their future of things that they, you know, should do or should not do based on their innate character. So a detective was sent along to Madame Repra's shop. She spots straight away that he's a detective that has been sent and tells him lots of things about his character. She did a stellar reading on him. Madame Repret absolutely knocks it out of the park with the character reading. So Sainsbury then writes to Madame Repret to say that her business is within the law and more than that, she's been credited as being an absolute genius. But she had another move up her sleeve. So Madame Repra then puts this letter up in the window of her shop as sort of the best advertisement that she's probably had at this point from the Chief Commissioner of Police himself. I can guess this public display kind of upset the police. Hugely. Police ask her to take that down (laughs) after a couple of weeks, which she complies with. But she kept the letter, right? Yeah, you would not get rid of a letter like that. And just a year later, in 1915, there was a police crackdown on fortune tellers. So when Madame Repra got a hearing in court, her defence lawyer stood up. Oh, and of course, what does he produce in evidence? But the letter from the police commissioner himself saying that her business is within the law because she's doing character readings. Well, 
Maybe she could see into the future after all. Tamsin, that's embarrassing. But it was also embarrassing for Sainsbury, the chief police commissioner, when he had to take the stand. Sainsbury is not happy at all at this point. He actually refuses to face the bench the entire time he's being questioned. But uh, Sainsbury is forced to acknowledge that he did write this letter, that he had sent this detective in who had given Madame Roper a wonderful testimonial. As a result of this, the police is very embarrassed. Sainsbury is reprimanded by the bench. So Madame Repra, a.k.a. Alice Harper, got off? Sadly, no. She was still fined. £7.10, shillings, which would be around $800 today. And that's actually double the, the normal amount that fortune tellers were usually fine in those circumstances. But that is because they decided Madame Repra was so successful um, and, and so good at what she did that she was charging double the usual fee of fortune tellers. So they double her fine. So you've told me lots of stories of female fortune tellers being prosecuted. But there were some men doing this work too, right? There were, but they sold themselves differently. Jeremy Patrick can explain. Often male fortune tellers would style themselves as uh, professional scientific astrologers. Uh, They would give themselves titles like professor of the sidereal sciences and try and purport that what they were doing was not involved in the occult or didn't involve the supernatural. So they argued that what they were doing was science? Yeah, they called it an inquiry into the stars. But remember, at this time, it wasn't exactly clear what science was. And how the stars magnetically pull on our brain chemistry and thus uh, affect what we as individuals will do in the future. And this explanation, it was, well, you know, quite different to how women sold their fortune telling. Women labelled their abilities as either gifts from God or as inherited supernatural abilities from ancestors long ago. And they then weren't able to claim the sort of protections as scientists that male fortune tellers often did. So it sounds like some ways of knowing those that claimed the emerging authority of science were seen as legitimate by the law, but other ways of knowing, well, they really weren't. Yeah, men and women drew on different kinds of defences, and men and women were also different kinds of clients. So men usually went to fortune tellers for concrete insights on something in the near future. And often this involved something related to money. So it might be, am I going to get that job I applied for? What sort of investment should I make in the stock market? Should I gamble on a specific horse in an upcoming race? Very specific, concrete things that would have a result in the near future. Whereas women often weren't interested in that sort of specific concrete uh, advice from a fortune teller, they often engaged in more of a relationship for emotional and spiritual support. And they would get insights into maybe how to deal with a difficult marriage, how to deal with kids who were, you know, uh, rebelling perhaps how to to navigate uh, difficult economic times in a 
sense of emotional support, not go spend your money at the, the horse race and you'll win. So it was a very different type of relationship and a very different type of practice that male and female customers wanted out of fortune telling. Hmm, it sounds closer to what we would today think of as therapy or having a counsellor or a best friend you can talk to. Yeah, I, I really think that was one of the big attractions of fortune telling for people was that it was a place to discuss your life and, and what's going on in your life, problems that you might have where you're trying to work out what's going to happen, what you should be doing. And this is a way of sort of seeking advice about those things. So I think perhaps fortune telling for some women is a form of therapy that they can talk it out. So men were mostly escaping prosecution while the women were getting into trouble. And the police crackdowns only increased. But soon enough, the women fortune tellers wised up to the fact that it was male undercover detectives who were catching them out. Some of them even start to say that they'll only do fortune telling readings for women because they see this is a foolproof way, you know, no policeman's going to get evidence against me. So police start thinking outside on the box and there's this pressure from the newspapers to do something about this trade. So what did they do? The police came up with an idea for a new kind of sting. They had women go undercover. In 1903 at the Redfern Police Station, there's a woman who's employed as a charwoman, which is an old-fashioned term for a cleaner. And so the police actually ask her to go and start getting her fortune read by various fortune tellers so that they can then take that as evidence into court. So poor women are informing against other poor women who have gone outside the traditional economy and earned a bunch of money, that means they're seen as rising above their class. Exactly. All in order to get evidence for the courts. And then during the First World War, there's a mounting amount of pressure to really crack down on fortune-telling because of concerns about preying on the wives and mothers of soldiers, that these women are being duped and um, being made even more fearful about their loved ones' fates, and that this is going to have a negative effect on the sort of morale of the country during this horrific time in Australia's history. And one of the unexpected results of these undercover stings to bust Federation fortune tellers was that it gave Australia its first female police officers. By the end of World War I, uh, basically every state apart from Queensland has female police employed. Part of the work that's best publicised during this period that they're most known for is the fortune-telling prosecutions. And this really gets them a lot of public support for this idea of having women on the police force. Fortune-telling for many years is a crime, a crime that's sort of only sporadically prosecuted and a crime that, although it is a crime, is being widely practised in society because there is a demand by people who want this sort of service and who obviously don't sort of think of it in criminal terms. What does it tell us about how we think about what criminality is? 
Mm. I think it really exposes the funny sort of difference between crime and criminality. Uh, A quotation that I really love from Victorian detective Alfred Stephen Bavet that he wrote in his memoirs is that it must be remembered that it is not always criminals who commit offences or crimes. And I think there's lots of different attitudes around fortune telling from people who sort of see it as a sign of insanity to those who sort of see it as just a sort of afternoon's amusement to those who see it as a way of earning some money to those who treat it as therapy and to those who just sort of see it as pure fraud. You've been listening to History Lab. This is the second episode of our four-part series, The Law's Way of Knowing, where we look at the intersection of history and the law. Head to our website, historylab.net, to see the record of an Australian fortune teller from 1898. And next time on History Lab, how a mother's thumbprint became a sure sign. Dropping February 18. History Lab is made on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, whose land was never ceded. Thanks to our collaborating historian, Dr Alana Piper. This episode was made by producer Zoe Ferguson. The executive producer was Emma Lancaster. Supervising producer was Sarah Mashman. And sound engineering and mixing was by Output Media. Our story consultant and editor was Belinda Lopez. Thanks also to those we spoke with. Jeremy Patrick, Samadhi Driscoll and our modern day fortune teller. Thank you also to our voice actor, Rod Chambers. And thank you also to our wonderful GLAM friends at the National Library of Australia and the New South Wales State Archives. History Lab is made by the Australian Centre for Public History and Impact Studios at UTS and in collaboration with our media partner, 2SCR 107.3 FM.